All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on the 9th day of October, 2018. Uh, I do like to remind you every week that I'm the author of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks uh, focuses on the mining shares, primarily on exploration companies and some newly producers, but not generally on the major companies, although a few of those are sneaking into our, uh, into our one category. Um, there are, where I think the most money can be made, of course, there's more risk, but where the biggest money can be made is in the exploration sector. It has not been a great year for us, uh, but I expect uh, next year should be much better. We'll talk to Michael Oliver in a few minutes and get his take on that. I'd like to remind you also that Chen Lin's uh, produ- produces a very, a very, very good letter. It's called uh, "What Is Chen Buying? What Is Chen Selling?" and you can uh, order that at ChenPicks.com. Go to ChenPicks.com. Chen was on with us uh, recently. Uh, in particular, some extremely exciting stories in the biotech sector, and Chen really keeps his uh, keeps up with that sector as well as anybody I've ever met up with and has made a lot of money for his subscribers uh, in that sector, chenpicks.com. And then, of course, we, uh, Michael Oliver is with me again. He'll be, we'll be talking to him in just a moment. Uh, he's providing a special offer uh, for investors who are primarily interested in gold and silver and gold and silver uh, mining shares. And for um, a very affordable $299 a year, OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. Mike will tell us a little more about that in a moment or two. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. Also, I want to encourage you to keep your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises. Send them along to questions4taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. We do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. The reason that I'm able to spend the time and effort to put this show together and to Make sure it happens. It's because companies like Genesis Metals Corp., Gold Mining Inc., Great Bear Resources, Novo Resources, Sandstorm Gold Limited, uh, Triumph Gold, and Uranium Energy are sponsors. And they are those are the sponsors for this week's show. I've titled today's show "U.S. Interest Rates Are Spiking Again." Why that is a huge deal. Economic geologist Dr. Tony Barassi. Barassi uh, from one of my top gold stock picks, namely Triumph Gold, will visit this show for the first time. He'll be with us after our first commercial break. John Rabino and Michael Oliver return. Uh, John will be with me in the second half of the show, and Michael will be with me momentarily. In 1970, 
A 1% increase in U.S. Treasury interest rates increased the budget deficit by $3.7 billion. Now, a with a $22 trillion budget deficit, a 1% increase in the rate of interest adds $220 billion annually to America's deficit. Imagine a 5% int- increase in rates, which would take us not that far above sort of average rates over history. Well, that would add almost a trillion dollars a year to our budget deficit. The U.S. is clearly approaching a state of fiscal bankruptcy even before baby boomer demographics are factored into the picture. But a gaping U.S. budget deficit isn't the only reason rising interest rates are a big deal. They tend to increase the value of the dollar on top of rising rates. That means that emerging market nations that have borrowed dollars are in a heap of hurt right now as the dollar uh, gets stronger and as interest rates rise, and they have hurt our emerging markets uh, quite a bit so far this year. I uh, might ask Michael about that in a moment as well. But John Rubino will be with me, as I mentioned, the second half of today's show to talk about the mathematical dynamics underlying an increasingly unstable global economy and monetary system. And we will see if we can get him to speculate a bit about how the existing economic pathology will play out and how, more importantly, you and I and all the people listening to this show can protect ourselves against the carnage that is likely to come. Right after our first break, uh, as I mentioned, I'll be talking to Tony Barresi about a company that I think is one of the most exciting exploration stories. That's what I uh, named as my top pick in Vancouver when I was up there the other weekend among exploration stories at this moment in time at its current price. uh, I I look forward very much to speaking with Tony Uh, The company has had some unbelievably strong uh, intersections, gold-copper intersections through a porphyry system in their Yukon property. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what Tony has to say about all of that. Uh, So John Rubino, second half, Tony Barrosi in a few minutes. But right now, I'm really glad to say Michael Oliver was with me. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Good to be back. And it's OliverMSA.com. And uh, just tell our listeners very briefly... What it is you're providing uh, for that $299 special offer for gold and silver investors? Well, we, we monitor gold and silver, obviously, and uh, also other precious metals from time to time, platinum, palladium, so forth, but mainly those two, and uh, the miners. And uh, just over the past week, for example, we put out a report where we went into the GDX ETF and looked at its holdings and picked out a half a dozen of the holdings that we thought look, looked technically better primed for a strong upturn from this hole that the gold miners ran than mm-hmm. their peers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we looked at the momentum technicals, and we also looked at relative performance of, of the symbols, and we, you know, we, we sifted through that ETF to pick out the best mm-hmm. probable launch candidates. Uh, not that they all won't go together. I'm not arguing that. It's just that some will go better. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're looking sure. for. And then uh, over the past few days, we've started to sift through the junior miners. And, uh, you know, so maybe one in ten of those will pick out as a, as a right candidate, technically speaking, for a, a strong initial surge. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and which one of those will outperform. So that's the type of, of work you will get continually monitoring that, that narrow area, but very important area. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll, you'll probably get a couple reports a week. Um, mm-hmm. Not as much Excellent. as our, our four-asset category report, but still it would be sufficiently tied into the technicals of, of that area uh-huh. of that report. Uh, well, that's wonderful. Include, no no yeah. fundamental comments. 
<laughs> no, I understand that. Well, there's plenty of people with fundamental comments, and there's plenty of people with technical analysis, but yours is the one, from a technical point of view, the one that I've felt most comfortable with and has been most helpful to me, not as a short-term trader, but as someone who looks to know whether I'm on the right side of a major trend or not. And I guess when you talk about junior companies, you're probably talking about the kind that you might find in the JDX, uh, JDXJ yes. and, the, and the seniors Correct. in the JDX, probably. Correct. Right. Okay. All right. Well, Michael, of all the major tectonic moves, uh, the one you you know we talked about this over and over again over the last few years on this show, the one that has been the most stubbornly refusing to change directions is the U.S. equity market. But alas, if I understood your momentum and structural work as you put out this past weekend, it looks like U.S. equities may finally may finally be turning south. Do I have that right? Yeah, you got it right. Uh, in layers, uh, there's never one magic number for a market, at least in, in our view. You know, a lot of investors like to know where's the breakout, where you know, and so forth. Yeah. Well, there are breakouts d- depending on the time scale that you're referencing. You're know, you looking at very long term charts, momentum charts, or shorter term. Well, on an intermediate term basis, and this would be like monthly momentum, uh, meaning uh, trends that tend to last three to five months. And then you get a pause or a pullback and so forth, you know. Uh, but on that time scale, last Thursday broke both the NASDAQ 100 and the S&P 500 through structural supports. And since then, they've labored below the levels. Right now, we're getting what we consider a benign daily holding pattern here after the sharp break we had uh, up to the lows of like yesterday, uh, which are not anywhere near as low as we think this drop will go. But we think on an intermediate trend basis, meaning between now and the end of the year, you've seen the high of the year, we think. And if we've seen the high of the year, I've got problems, because next year the numbers are going to shift. I'm talking momentum numbers, because changes in quarterly momentum numbers, annual momentum numbers, and so forth, will shift upward dramatically such that it will be very easy to break through long-term momentum trend structures that will really turn it down. So basically, I'd say we've broken the legs of the market. There's a real good chance you've seen the high of the year. There's a good chance you're going lower between now and the end of the year. I wouldn't bet heavily on a major drop this year. It's possible. And we may actually break some long-term structures this year. Mm -hmm. Uh, And for the S&P, for example, that's down in the mid-2700s, mid to upper 2700s. So it's several percent, you know, 4 or 5% below the market right now. Uh, Yeah, actually about 4% below the market to do that kind of damage. But mm-hmm. I think the real payoff probably comes next year. But from the point of view of you know, this asset category, and we are unique, by the way. US, uh, if you look at U.S. stocks versus, let's say, the DAX index in Germany, it's like they're in different categories. Yeah. And the DAX index is trading back below the 2015 price highs, you know, which, which for the S&P was a 23-something, you know, mm-hmm. 2300s. Um, <clears throat> so we are unique in our, our strength, but it is, it's, it's, it's hobbled. All right. The process has begun for a layered decay and then decline. All right, Michael, with two minutes left here, just to, I, I wonder, do you think that the gold markets, um, some of these other markets that sort of run counter to the equity markets, do you, do you think we still need to see some weakness in the gold, in the equity markets before we start to see uh, more strength in gold and other commodities, perhaps? I think it helps uh, because, after all, you know, it's an issue of moving of money. And we've seen it before in history. You have, and, and we have, yeah. uh, where you know you, you shake the stock market, and, and there are some people who realize that, and, and they're not even ideologically 
you know, necessarily in our camp of, no, of uh, uh-huh. distrust of, of large government and so forth, but yeah. uh, who see overvaluation. And <clears throat> once you rattle them in price terms, you know, where they actually feel it, uh, they look for some other place to go. And frankly, if you look at commodities in general, particularly food commodities and even gold, uh, they put in their lows. Uh, gold miners aren't going to zero, for example. I mean, they are effectively a commodity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, commodities can't go to zero. Neither can gold miners. Now, individual companies can, but the, the indexes can't. And when you mm-hmm. take something like the GDX, which was in the 60s back in 2011 and 12, and dropped uh, near $12 in <laughs> 2016, I mean, uh-huh. you're not going to zero, guys. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a value. The issue then becomes, okay, if it can't go to zero, uh, is it just going to lay here forever, or could it actually go up? Well, I think it's in the process of putting in a secondary low. I think that low is probably in place, higher than the one we made in 2016, and turn back up again. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also think this is true with commodities in general, like the Bloomberg Commodity Index, uh, Mm -hmm. I think is is accomplishing effectively the same thing. So I think there is already money movement Mm -hmm. from the equity category into what's can be perceived as value. Right, right. Probably the, uh, the smart money, the people that are ahead of the curve yeah. as opposed to the general populace, yeah. which almost always are, are the ones that get hurt the most at the top of the market. So such is life. Okay. And what we try to do on this show, of course, is to help people not be among that common denominator, the, the larger group of people. Michael, you've always very helpful to us. Thank you so much for your time again. Thank you, Jay. Uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again next week, um, assuming you're available. So uh, thank you very much. Well, folks, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Dr. Tony Barassi of Triumph Gold will be with me for the first time. I'm really looking forward to hearing what he has to say in as much as Triumph Gold has become one of my favorite exploration stories. So uh, don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. Barassi. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Dr. Tony Barrasey. Uh, he is um, with his, his Vice President of Explorations of Triumph Gold. That's an, uh, he is an economic geologist with uh, greater than 10 years of base and precious metals exploration experience. Uh, and he has conducted successful exploration programs on grassroots and brownfield projects and specializes in volcanogenic massive sulfide porphyry and epithermal uh, deposit exploration. Uh, and um, he has uh, joined uh, Triumph Gold uh, along with some other – well, this is a company that I, I followed in, a, in an earlier – uh, in an, under an earlier corporation, the projects that they have, the, the main project that the company is working on. Uh, but this is a new management team with uh, fresh ideas, and uh, Tony is one of the major uh, contributors to the new geological imp- interpretation. And uh, as a shareholder, I must say I'm very pleased with what I'm seeing so far, not necessarily in the share price because none of these shares are doing really well these days in a, in a fairly uh, difficult market. But just on the basis of the exploration success, it's really been very, uh, very exciting. Um, thank you for joining me today, Tony. Oh, it's my my pleasure, Jay, and thank you for your enthusiasm for our project. Well, the enthusiasm comes with the drill bit and the results, I must say. And uh, you know, not being a geo, uh, I don't get as excited as early as some as you you folks do. But uh, sometimes I like to see the results. Uh, but nonetheless, um, I, I guess I should mention. Uh, that uh, Triumph Gold trades in Toronto under the symbol TIF. Uh, in the U.S., you can buy it as I have under the symbol TIGCF. 78.5 million shares outstanding, 46 cents a share in U.S. money today, giving it a market capital of, uh, capitalization of about 36 million. And the company's flagship property is a free gold mountain project in the Yukon. Well, I've, I've been holding the stock now uh, since the, the new company took over, since Triumph Gold took over this project, and... Um, I just recently, uh, after speaking to John Anderson, the company's chairman, decided to double my position. That was after uh, having viewed some spectacular, I'd say spectacular, intersections in the porphyry, uh, gold-copper porphyry, uh, that the company has uh, been exploring. Um, Now, the company, is the project, uh, even before Triumph Gold got uh, involved with it, uh, they did have some success. I mean, it's something like, I think in all different uh, 43101 categories on three different properties, something like over 5 million ounces of, of uh, gold equivalent ounces, depending on what cutoff grades you use and so forth. Uh, so it hasn't been as if there's been no success before, but of course that company ran upon a five-year bear market um, and now a new management with great ideas. So, Tony, I'd like to ask you um, – your, your project in the Yukon, is a, it's a district-scale project. Um, as much as possible, can you talk about the nature of the Free Gold Mountain property in lay terms and, and what the potential is for it to host an economic deposit? Sure, Jay. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of different factors that go into some, some properties' potential to host an economic deposit. 
um, you know, everybody knows that Yukon has a lot of gold. Uh, but one of the real barriers to being able to have an economic deposit uh, in Yukon is, is a lack of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, so many of the really good projects in Yukon are, are strongly handicapped by a complete lack of any existing infrastructure. Their projects are tens or hundreds of kilometers away from existing roads and power lines. Uh, one of the things that we really have going for us is that we're only 200 kilometers north of Whitehorse, uh, Yukon's capital, which has mm-hmm. everything you would need. Uh, and we're an entirely road accessible property. So all of those uh, mineral resources that, that you were talking about are all road accessible resources. Um, so we're, we're along a road um, that extends off of the Klondike Highway, uh, and our property begins 50 kilometers off of that road, uh, and the road extends all the way through all of our deposit areas. And that road is actually scheduled for government infrastructure upgrade, uh, where it will be turned from what is now sort of a dirt road into a two-lane, 80-kilometer-an-hour, entirely government-maintained road. Mm, so that's good. one of the things that... Yeah, <laughs> that's government support at its best. Um, so uh-huh. that's one of the factors that leads to um, these uh, deposits being economic. But really, in the end, what you need to do is find a lot of metal near surface um, that's high grade. Uh, and that's what we're working towards right now. And the reason geologically that there's so much potential here, Jay, is that we're located along a very important uh, crustal scale structure, a fault mm-hmm. line called the Big Creek Fault. Uh, and it's a controlling structure all the way through up into Alaska where it's related to a number of deposits there. It's related to Gold Corp's um, coffee project just to the northwest of us. And we have the longest road accessible portion of that fault. One of the things that that fault has done is it's allowed in, an intrusion to come very close to the Earth's surface. And that's mm-hmm. what's necessary in order to form porphyry deposits. Porphyry deposits are very rare in Yukon, but because of the Big Creek Fault on our property, we have the capacity, the ability to have a near-surface intrusion. Um, so we're in the right neighborhood geologically for this sort of thing to happen. We have the infrastructure that's necessary for, uh, for, to make these sorts of things economic, and now we're finding economic raids. Uh, indeed, it would seem you are. I mean, I'm looking at, uh, well, I guess we can get to that. But before we get, get into the blue sky, uh, the, the blue sky porphyry target, that's, I think, where you're spending most of your time and effort at the moment. Could you talk a little bit about what geologically, uh, as much in lay terms as possible, do you are you seeing that's different from what your predecessors might have uh, been seeing there? Sure. So... The earlier iteration of our company was founded in in 2006 by a third-generation prospector and placer miner, Uh, and his eyes were all on grassroots exploration, all the way up and down this 20-kilometer, 200, uh, or 20-kilometer long, 200-square-kilometer area that that is our property. Uh, He consolidated the property and did exploration all along it, as you would expect a prospector to do. Um, But as the company grew uh, and as they made more and more discoveries, they focused in on the three areas that have 
the resources. And very little exploration, true exploration, was done in the, in the final years um, before we became Triumph Gold. Uh, but there was a lot of resource drilling going on. So they defined the three resources, and at the current metal prices, those didn't demand a capital investment to build a, a mill and a mine. And there was a loss of understanding of the exploration potential in the property. So in 2016, when the company was sort of reinvented, we took a look at all of the places where there were drill holes or trenches or assay results that were good economic style intersections or assays, but that were not explained by any of the current geological models. Mm-hmm. And what we discovered was that there was this very large, six-kilometer-long, very intense, multi-element soil anomaly, and that within that soil anomaly, there were a whole bunch of places where there was evidence that the entire soil anomaly was underlain by a large, porphyry copper gold system. <laughs> now, that soil anomaly also contains two of the resources, the nucleus epithermal resource and the revenue diatreme-related resource, which uh-huh, is sort of the root uh-huh. of an explosive volcano. And that's where all of the exploration had been focused. But those are just two sort of quarters on a page of paper. And the, what we're looking at now is the entire page of paper for porphyry mm-hmm. potential. So now we're stepping way out from each of those deposit areas and focusing on everything around them. And what are we finding? We're finding that the entire area is underlain by porphyry and not just porphyry system. You know, we haven't just had technical successes, but we've actually hit higher grade mineralization than the mineralization that's within the resources. And really that's what we needed to do, what we wanted Mm -hmm. to do, and what we have now done. Mm -hmm. Well, indeed. And um, so are are you saying that there's one large, like one large porphyry or a, a series, a cluster of porphyries in this gigantic target, do you believe? Or Okay, so as you go through this entire six-kilometer area that has the multi-element intense mm-hmm. soil anomaly, there's a whole bunch of different characteristics and a whole bunch of different types of uh, mineralization. So we have this big diatreme or the root of a volcano that's blasted up through the surrounding rock Mm -hmm. and that's mineralized along its edge. And then we have a low temperature epithermal system with a bunch of gold right on, on the side of the soil anomaly. And then some of these other things that we're identifying are places where the rock is fractured and broken up and porphyry style mineralization has invaded that rock. Mm -hmm. But, so there's a whole bunch of, of little things all through the six-kilometer area. But the real prize, what we're really going for here, is that we think all of these are related to something that we have not yet seen. Uh. So the entire area is underlain by a porphyry intrusion, and that the interface between that intrusion and the rock that we're looking at near surface is going to be better mineralized than anything that we've seen yet. Um, and, you know, anyone can say, oh, yeah, there's, there's a monster at depth or an elephant mm-hmm. underlying all of this or that sort of thing. It's sort of standard promotional <laughs> fodder, <laughs> fodder for promotion. I've, but, you know, I've, what we've really got going for us here 
is that there's a whole bunch of academic work that's been done on these rocks that shows the age of the rocks. The rocks that host the mineralization are all 105 million years old, but the mineralization is 30 million years younger. Mm, And what that means is that the rocks that they're hosted in could not have caused this mineralization. Uh There has to be an intrusion that's the same age as the mineralization, which has caused that mineralization, and we have not seen that yet. So Uh every indication is that there has to be something underlying this, which is the cause of the mineralization, and that's what we're going for now. Well, uh, it's called the blue sky, copper, gold copper porphyry. That's sort of at the southeastern end of your... Uh, of your six-kilometer-long target, right? And is that where you're spending most of your attention now? Is that what you'll be, will you be focusing mostly on that? So when you hit the kinds of grades that we hit um, in the blue sky porphyry, um, you have to do as much as you can to follow up on that kind of stuff. So um, for instance, we had a 316-meter intersection that had Uh, 1.1 grams gold and 0.27% copper. And that included a 79.75 meter intersection of almost two and a half grams gold, 0.38% copper. Um, Yeah, so that's incredible. That's the highest grade porphyry intersection that's ever been made in in Yukon. Um, And, you know, if you use the metric of of, uh, meters times grams, uh, that works out to uh, 565 gram meters, which is you know wow. a metric that people sort of compare intersections with yes. um, between deposit types, uh, and that's going to probably be one of one of the highest in the world for for an exploration project this year. So those mm-hmm. are those are really good numbers, and we've got to follow up on it. So yes, of course, it's going to be a focus of exploration, but it's not going to be the only focus of exploration because, again we don't think that the blue sky porphyry sits in isolation. We think that the Mm -hmm. real prize is something even bigger and better than this blue sky porphyry. So we're going to use this as a catalyst to be able to move forward with a very aggressive exploration program next year, where we're going to be looking at the entire soil anomaly area. Mm -hmm. Are we looking at something at at considerable depth then? And, And how deep? I mean, the 316 meters isn't, is that, does that start pretty close to surface? And are you really looking at a deeper, at a much deeper target here, uh, looking for that origin that you're speaking of, that mineralization origin? Right. Uh, so the way that I like to sort of describe it to people is that you've got right from surface a whole bunch of small deposit areas or small mm-hmm. areas of mineralization. So that includes the revenue in the nucleus deposits yeah. which are already pre-existing and then some of these other things that we're discovering um, in between them and outboard of them are also likely to have near surface potential for, for mining. Um, the blue sky porphyry, uh, we, we did not, it does not daylight as far as we know um, mm-hmm. And that's one of the exploration opportunities is to try to look for where this thing comes to surface. But the, the shallowest intersection was at about 100 meters depth. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and then uh, we intersected it as deep as about 500 meters mm-hmm. um, depth. The really interesting thing about our deepest intersections of the blue sky porphyry is that um, those drill holes 
the, the blue sky porphyry body is tilted. Uh, the mineralized body is tilted, and the drill holes were tilted as well. And they were tilted in an even shallower inclination than mm-hmm. the mineralized body. And they actually penetrated through, at, at their deepest depth, they penetrated through the top surface or the yeah. upper surface of the mineralized body. So they uh-huh. don't close off the mineralized body at depth at all. In fact, uh-huh. they were just drilled at too shallow of an angle, and they mm-hmm. came up through the top of it at about 500 meters depth. Mm-hmm. So it mm-hmm. keeps going for sure. Um, so, yes, we're looking for more blue sky porphyry style stuff at depth, and we're also looking for something that's quite deep that would underlie all of these smaller things which could be mined at surface. And if you look at some of the world's biggest um, porphyry deposits, like Togai, for instance, which has a footprint that's only just a little bit bigger than the footprint of our soil anomaly, there's mm-hmm. parts of that which are mined at surface. And then underlying all of that, there's a great big body uh, or several great big bodies that can be mined underground. Um, and those are the deep portions of, of the surface expression. That's the kind of model that we're looking at. Tony, your uh, largest shareholder, um, Gold Corp, it's obviously a gold company. You have a, lot of, um, you, you have a lot of base metals there as well. You remember, of course, we talked about copper, but you've had some silver, zinc, lead. You've even had, um, you've even had some um, molly there, molybdenum. Um, is this, is this a project that might attract or be attractive to some of the big base metal companies? Let's say, I mean, because what you're talking to me, what, what I'm hearing from you is that, again, we don't want to overstate things because you have to go through you know, sound science before we can say for sure about anything. But the prospects of something very significant here, uh, is this, I mean, Gold Corp obviously likes what they see, but have you any idea what Gold Corp sees there? Lots of gold, I guess. Um, what what are your, what are your thoughts about why Gold Corp? I mean, they've gone a second round of financing, um, hold just a whisker under twenty percent that they can hold before having to report more. Um, what are your thoughts about Gold Corp? And are there some other major, without naming any names, other major base metal companies that might at least know about you? Sure, Jay. So. Uh, Gold Corp became involved shortly after uh, we did our review of the exploration potential of the property, and and they got on to the idea that we had that this whole thing um, was underlain by a large porphyry system, uh, and their belief that 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 was well-founded was one of the catalysts for their initial investment in us uh, in early 2017. That allowed us to do one of Yukon's most aggressive exploration programs in 2017. And we had really good results from that, which uh, sort of spurred the next round of, of investment, which they made in us. Uh, and that's what funded the, the work that we were able to, to do this year. Uh, you know, any, anyone would be happy with the kinds of, of results that we're getting this year. And I expect, you know, even though there's some, some copper and molly in the mix, uh, they're, they're pleased with the amount of gold and base metals. But you're right. I mean, Gold Corp is, is about gold, uh, and we've got a lot of other base metals as well. Um, and the truth is that, you know, there are a number of, of uh, large mining companies that, that we've spoken to about, about this project, uh, mm-hmm. and 
you know, there's a, there is a lot of interest in this project because of, of the base metals and, and the, the combination uh, with gold. But uh, I, I would say, you know, Gold Corp is, is a fantastic partner uh, and they've been very supportive of us and, and easy to work with. And they, uh, they have poor free deposits in South America. And, you know, in the end, uh, profit is king. <laughs> and yeah. if you get it from, from gold and copper, that, that's all right. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. That's exactly right. Well, we are out of time, Tony. And thank you so much for being with us. Uh, you are well-funded, I guess, to carry out your exploration for the rest of this year. And you won't have too much trouble raising money, I'm sure, getting into next year. Well, that's, uh, that, that's what we're hoping. <laughs> okay. All right. Very good. Well, thanks, Tony. We are out of time. Uh, thank you so much for being with us and explaining this most exciting project. Folks, we're going to break now, but don't go away because John Rubino will be with us to talk about what these raising rates may mean for our markets and why they could be very dangerous. Don't go away. We'll be right back with John Rubino. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Triumph Gold holds a 100% interest in the district scale Free Gold Mountain Gold Copper Project in Yukon with a government-maintained road accessing their 200-square-kilometer property. The 2018 drill program has resulted in exciting discoveries to date, hitting the richest intersection ever in a porphyry system in Yukon. The company is well-funded and has a large institutional holding, including Gold Corp and Zijin Mining. Triumph trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol TIG and the OTC markets TIGCF. The website is triumphgoldcorp.com. Gold Mining, Inc., ticker symbol G-O-L-D on the TSX and G-L-D-L-F on the OTC is the biggest bet for gold investors and legendary investors like Doug Casey, Rick Rule, and Marin Katusa, who put millions of dollars into backing the company, along with institutional investors. The insiders own over 20%. Gold mining has strong cash and no debt. It's one of the top 1% of gold companies that has over 20 million ounces of gold resources. Visit goldmining.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me, once again, a fairly frequent guest on this show, not as frequent as I would like to have him, but uh, there is the reality of time, and uh, really pleased to have John Rubino with us. He runs the popular financial website, dollarcollapse.com, and actually it was an article that I picked up with Dollar Collapse uh, that prompted me to pick up the phone and see if we could get John on today's show. The article that John 
uh, wrote there and uh, talked about was U.S. interest rates are spiking again. Why this is a huge deal. All right, John, why is this a huge deal? Hey, Jay. Well, low interest rates, artificially low interest rates, cause people to behave in ways that don't make any sense in an environment of normal interest rates. And that's what we're headed for now is normal rates after uh, a decade of unnaturally low rates. Uh, so to be specific, it caused us to buy a lot of houses at prices that, um, that that really don't make any sense with mortgages now at 5%. Just just this week, mortgage rates went to 5% on a 30-year fixed mm-hmm. um, versus 35 to 4% for most of the last five or six years. So house prices have, were bid up by people using extremely cheap money to buy houses. Mm-hmm. And now those house prices don't make any sense and uh, and sales are plunging. And a lot of formerly hot markets like Manhattan's home sales are crashing and uh, Seattle's are falling and um, the Bay Area in general is weak. So we're seeing this big part of the economy roll over. Um, the same kind of thing is happening in auto sales right now, where we had a, um, a lot of people were calling it an auto bubble over the last few years, where auto companies had access to extremely cheap financing, and that enabled them to offer 0% loans to people buying new cars. Mm-hmm. So you, you had these auto mortgages becoming popular, where people would lock themselves in for seven years on a new car <laughs> at 0% thinking they got a great deal, but really they're locked into a depreciating asset mm-hmm. and pretty much everybody who could do that has done it. So now car sales are starting to roll over. Ford just uh, 28 minutes ago announced that their most recent month sales were down 11% year over year. So you got these two big industries um, tipping into recession because interest rates have have gone up to the point where their business models no longer work. Um, And that is, um, you know, it's a very big deal for the economy overall because the the most leveraged part of the economy are the ones that go first. In other words, Mm -hmm. the, the leveraged assets get harder and harder to buy in an interest rate rising cycle. And that's usually the canary in the coal mine. That's the thing that, uh, that, scares people into pulling back in other aspects of their lives and it slows down the overall economy. Uh, And so we could be seeing that right now. We could be looking at the beginning of the end of this expansion. And you know what? Not a moment too soon. This is the longest expansion ever. (laughs) It's going on 10 years now. Uh, And it took equity prices to um, record levels based on basically any valuation measure you want to use. We're, we're in bubble levels in equities. Um, it took bond prices until just very recently to record, you know, bubblicious levels. And it took a lot of the rest of the economy to places where we wouldn't normally go except in an environment of unnaturally easy money. So, so the question becomes, what happens now? Can, can we handle a recession after we've taken on, you know, the federal government has doubled its debts, the corporate mm-hmm. sector has record debts, the, uh, um, the consumer sector has record credit card debt, record student loan debt, and very high mortgage debt, plus all those auto loans. <laughs> uh, so, so we're in a place where a typical recession, in other words, uh, you know, a few quarters of negative growth, no big deal, macro from a macro standpoint, is systemically dangerous for us just because so many people are so highly leveraged. 
So this time around could be very, very different. You can see air pockets under stocks. Um, you could see the um, the housing-related companies and the mortgage-related companies and the auto companies really taking a hit, uh, which would probably pull down the, the bulletproof fang tech stocks. Uh, so it, it could be very serious. What, wow. what happens now, and we're seeing the very beginning of it right now. Um, and, and then... For your listeners, of course, uh, the, the important question is, what does this mean for gold? <laughs> and, and typically, in, um, in the business cycle, gold tends to start moving at the end of the central bank tightening process. In other words, when the central bank is still raising interest rates, that's not great for something people see as an inflation hedge like gold. But as soon as the Fed stops tightening and starts easing, gold historically tends to take off. And if the economy is really slowing right now, which the macro numbers don't say that yet, but these sectors that that we just talked about imply Mm -hmm. that it will be soon, then the Fed is going to have to, first of all, you know, delay its next rate increase, then it's going to have to cancel it, then it's going to have to go to cutting rates and reintroduce QE. You know, all of that is coming, but now we have a sense of the timing. And it could be in 2019, which is great for gold and great for mining stocks. Mm-hmm. John, a couple of other areas that you, you hinted on the, uh, the debt that the, the government has taken on. Uh, I think I saw somewhere that back uh, before we went off the gold standard back in 1970, uh, a 1% rise in the interest rate added something like $3.7 billion to the federal deficit. With a $22 trillion deficit, a 1% rise increases it by $220 billion. Or if we were to raise interest rate, if interest rates were to go up 4%, that'd be almost a trillion dollars more a year in interest expense for the U.S. government. Um, I mean, we're... Where is the financing going to come to pay for those to pay to to, to you know to pay for Uncle Sam's uh, deficit spending? Oh, they'll make it up out of thin air, of course, the the way they always do. Uh, so, and which they can keep doing as long as we'll take those dollars as something that has value. So the the question for governments becomes: at, at what point do people figure out that the supply of these backed by nothing, fake monopoly money currencies, uh, until the supply of them is becoming so high that their value isn't going to be maintained going forward. Uh, And the the way that process works is that people start to figure out that uh, the government's borrowing too much money and money is too easy and they've, they've just got a lot of money coming in for no more work than they used to do. So they take that money and they convert it to real stuff. In other words, they get rid of their dollars and euros and yen by buying farmland or precious metals or oil wells or rental houses. Um, And the price of those things goes up in the local currency terms, which we think of as inflation, but it's really people losing faith in the currency. Uh, Historically, that's been the process that ends extremely long credit expansions. Uh, and we're kind of sort of seeing it now, except the, the government and most people don't recognize it as such. You know, when stocks go to record levels that bear no relation to earnings, that's people losing faith in the currency and being willing to pay up to get out of the currency and into stocks. Same thing with house prices, record level house prices. You know, a fine art is at record levels. Um, 
trophy real estate like London penthouses until very recently. Um, they, they were at record levels. So we've seen a lot of this process already happen, but people don't recognize it as mm-hmm. a vote of no confidence in the currency. Mm-hmm. When it spreads to the rest of the economy, in other words, when price increases become widespread and wages start to spike, which we started to see lately with Amazon going to um, an across-the-board $15 minimum wage. Mm -hmm. Um, That's when it becomes real to more and more people. And at some point, you get a critical mass of people coming to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. And then inflation hedges, real stuff, start to spike. And then it's game over. Governments don't any longer have a currency that allows them to run unlimited deficits. And they have to live within their means, which is a huge crisis. You know, look at Europe, where they tried to impose austerity which is to say cut deficits, don't eliminate them, but just cut them down a little bit and you've Mm -hmm. got political chaos there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's going to happen all over the world pretty soon. And it's going to happen here as much as anywhere else. So, you know, get ready for political and economic chaos as soon as we have to balance the budget. Oh, boy. I mean, I don't know. That's, That's unthinkable to balance the budget. I mean, what kind of interest rates would we have to have to... Uh, to clear the market, John, right now, if if only Americans were paying for the uh, for the for the treasuries, uh, you know, who knows what? The, I mean, here's here's another issue I want to ask you about: China and Russia, countries that are not necessarily terribly keen about the United States these days, and we they had been we had been depending on the on the kindness of strangers, as it was said, for many decades now. The U.S. has run huge deficits, but the Japanese, the Chinese, other countries would lend us, uh, would buy treasuries. Do you see anything, you know, so, so the question in my mind is, why would the Chinese want to keep supporting the United States when we use the, finan- the financing to build up our military to keep them from having control of their sea lanes in the South China Sea? Why would our adversaries want to keep buying treasuries or maybe they don't want to, but why are they continuing to do so? And do you see any potential for that to change? Well, in a frenemy relationship, you have a lot of cross currents, right? Mm-hmm. And China is a perfect example of that. Yeah, yeah, we're um, kind of sort of geopolitical rivals. In other words, mm-hmm. we want to maintain dominance in their region, and they want to be the regional superpower. So naturally, we bump up against each other. Um But as far as financing goes, it's in their interest, or it has been in their interest all along, to lend us the money with which we buy their stuff, right? Mm -hmm. That's how they make a profit. It's vendor financing, (laughs) to use the business term for it. Uh, But that can only go on for so long, because eventually they build up so many IOUs from us that it becomes a huge risk for them. In other words, they they make money selling us stuff, but they incur a, a risk that the treasury bonds that they have gotten in return for the stuff they're sending us lose value when we eventually have to devalue our currency. Mm -hmm. So they've got that staring at at them out there. And and they've been hedging their bets by buying gold very aggressively because in a world where the dollar is devalued, gold soars because gold is basically the, the old kind of money that we run back to when newfangled money turns out not to work after all, you know, and that's clearly happening with the world's fiat currencies. So China has these mixed motivations right now. They want us to keep buying their stuff. And to do that, they have to keep lending us money and they have to keep accumulating treasury bonds. But that builds up 
a risk for them, and it l- allows us to finance a military that is causing them trouble. So they're mm-hmm. they're basically taking the long view. They're building up gold um, year after year, um, decade after decade, knowing that that will help them when the time comes. They're building up their military. They're they're building a navy that numerically is going to be bigger than ours in the not too distant future, um, knowing that in the inevitable conflict where the control of the South China Sea, for instance, is finally decided, um, the bigger their buildup, the more time they have to do it, the better their chances are of kicking us out of that place. So they're looking a decade or two decades down the road uh, and taking steps now to prepare for what they see as coming. And we're just behaving completely cluelessly. You know, we're we're borrowing money from China year after year after year, allowing them to buy the gold and build up the military that will cause us trouble at some point in the future. You know, we're, we're behaving really cluelessly and they're behaving fairly intelligently, at least in those areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think they feel any real time sensitivity here. Like they, they don't feel any pressure to get this over with this year. Because they know that the trends are in their favor. Mm-hmm. Long and term. That's, yeah, yeah, long term. A decade from now, if current trends continue, they will be in better shape than they are today. They'll have a bigger Navy capable of uh, causing us more trouble over there. They'll have more gold than they do now, which protects their currency from our devaluation. Uh, so they'll be okay. So they're, they're not really that worried about those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should be much more worried than we are about our current trends. Yeah. Well, we've been the the top dog now for a number of generations, and I guess a lot of people sort of think that we can keep doing what we've been doing, printing money, uh, living irresponsibly beyond our means, and we can just stay on top forever. But, of course, nobody stays on top forever. Uh, John, I want to ask you then uh, what has happened. The Shanghai Free Trade Zone, which has been set up, as I understand it, allows now, uh, for example, Russia or Iran or some of these countries that are not all that friendly to the United States to be able to sell their uh, their oil to uh, to China in exchange for uh, for their Chinese currency, which then can be used to exchange for gold in the Shanghai free trade zones. Uh, is that your understanding? And to what extent do you think that may be a mechanism that undermines the dollar longer term? Longer term is the the operative word here, um, because it, it's happening. Mm-hmm. And it's progressing, this this um, departure and diversification away from the dollar on the part of a lot of countries. But it's it's a long-term process because right now the, the dollar is still the only game in town mm-hmm. uh, as far as a um, um, major reserve asset goes. Uh, you know, you, you don't want to load up on rubles and you probably don't want to load up on yuan if you're a, a central bank, right? Because you, you still want to own a lot of dollars just because we're still relatively safe. Mm-hmm. But over time, as more and more countries figure out that they can trade bilaterally with their own currency and with the currency of, uh, of their trade partner, uh, they don't need dollars. So over time, the, the share of dollars in central bank reserves will go down. And it has been going down. It's gone from, what, 70 80% down to 50 60% mm-hmm. now, depending on right. the central bank. Um, and that's going to continue. Until 30 or 40%, they don't need us anymore. Right. At some point, uh, that will be the case. Well, a lot more to talk to you about. I mean, for sure, one of the issues, I think, with raising rates that we didn't get to talk about because we're just about out of time here has to do with 
the emerging markets and their borrowing of dollars and also as rates rise. So what they have to come up with in terms of their own currency to buy dollars to repay their debt, is that something you think with about 30 seconds, is that something you think that could trigger the next a financial crisis globally? Yeah, this other stuff was kind of long-term that we talked about. The emerging market crisis is immediate. It's here now, and a lot of those countries are, are functionally bankrupt. Turkey and maybe Pakistan, who just asked for an IMF bailout, and Argentina, who got the biggest bailout in IMF history, and Venezuela. A lot of these countries are bankrupt, and they owe the money they owe to Western banks, which right. means it's coming home. All right, we're going to have to leave it go at that, John. Thank you so much for your, always a pleasure having you on to talk about the big picture and the smaller picture, but you uh, pull things together as well as anybody we have. So I want to thank you very much for being with us once again. Well, folks, uh, that is all the time we have for this week. Next week, Keith Weiner will be with me to discuss the negative interest rates and how that has set one of the strongest fiat currencies in the world, namely the Swiss franc, towards its self-destruction. Can you believe it? The Swiss franc? would be self-destructing. Well, at least that's what Keith Weiner has to say. Also, uh, Brian Groves will be with us uh, of Genesis Metals. And if we're lucky, we'll have Michael Oliver with us as well once again. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 